This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Blue Land. Did you know that uh, about 5 billion, billion? That's a de- I checked that because that's a lot. Plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy. We're shipping around all this water using fuel when we don't have to. Every year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year. This year, maybe turn the New Year's resolution into action that makes a difference by switching to Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's a simple idea. They have refillable cleaning products. They have a nice design. I have them in my home. It looks nice on your counter. You fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blue Land tablets, wait for them to dissolve, and you never have to grab bulky, heavy cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. And refills, because they're small and you don't have to ship a bunch of water across the country, starts at just $2.25. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets, Laundry tablets, everybody, you know what I mean. All Blue Land products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. Blue Land is trusted in over a million homes, including, yeah, mine. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners right now. You can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss it. Blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. Again, blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. Hello and welcome to Dear Hank and John. It's a comedy podcast about death where myself, John Green, and usually my brother Hank Green, although not this week because he is on paternity leave, answer your questions, provide you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. This week, I am so thrilled to be joined by Ashley Ford. Hi, Ashley. Hi, John. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, right, I like to put the self-promo right at the beginning, <laughs> so 100% of listeners hear it. <laughs> um, okay, my name is Ashley Ford, obviously. I'm a writer and an editor, and I do those things, you know, sort of like freelance, or as some people want to be more fancy, call it self-employed. Um, and then <laughs> during the day, I'm a development executive at a company called Matter Studios, and I work in web series and documentaries for them. I'm working on a book. I write stuff on the internet all the time, and I'm just like pretty much around. Like I'm just around. Ashley is, I think, one of the best followers that you can possibly have on the website Twitter. But also, um, I'm a huge fan of your essays, both memoiry and otherwise, and very excited for your book. Oh, thanks, John. I'm excited about it, too. We just got to, you know, do the thing, finish the thing. I am familiar with that very problem. <laughs> <laughs> I am living with it right now. Yeah. Uh, so, Ashley, we've got to start the pod by answering the question that we received overwhelmingly um, over the last few days which uh, is one version or, or another of what? Oh, God. Panic. What? <laughs> How? What do we do? How do I move forward um, from people who are concerned about the results of the U.S. election? Um, and I don't know what to tell them. Um, you know, it's 
it's really tough. I don't necessarily know what to tell people right now, which has been strange for me because I am, you know, I, I am that friend people usually have <laughs> who they call and they say, I don't know how to feel and I don't know what to do. And I can offer reassurances. And it was harder this time. It was so much harder. Um, I had a really hard time reassuring myself. I'm still not, I would say, properly reassured the way I want to be. But, you know, I, I think... At the end of the day, the thing that helps me sleep and the thing that helps me get out of bed when I wake up is the idea that I'm one person, but I'm one person with some privilege and some power um, and some say. And I did what I was supposed to do. I showed up at the polls and I cast my vote and my person didn't win, but I don't think that that's the last vote I get to cast, you know? And I think I actually cast votes every day with my choices, um, with my money, <laughs> with um, the things that I share on social media. I feel like now more than ever, I just need to be conscious of how many votes I'm casting and in what direction I'm like, you know, hopefully influencing the country in one way or another. That was so beautiful. I have literally nothing to add to it except to read <laughs> a, a tweet that you wrote a couple days ago that I found very useful. Uh, you wrote, I'm feeling a lot of things, not all bad, not all good, kind of scared and definitely nervous. Mostly I'm committed to caring for myself. And the only thing I want to add to that is that, you know, people need to take care of themselves yeah. and, you know, take care of yourself. And remember, like Ashley said, that, uh, Every action that you take is casting a vote. Yeah. That's very beautifully put. I have nothing to add. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> um, do you want to permanently replace Hank? He wouldn't have been nearly as good in that oh, line. Oh, no, no, because I love listening to the pod and I love you guys' banter. And, you know, Hank has such a particular way of talking. It is so fast. And it is so I know. like, and he. Hits I know he talks so really fast hard. that you think that he's smart. <laughs> I've, you know what? If that's what he's doing, it's working, okay? Because <laughs> I'm usually like things happen in the world, and I'm just like, you know, I'm really interested in how Hank is going to respond to this because I know he's going to say smart things, and now I'm yeah. really questioning whether or not he's saying smart things, or if I'm just like, sound smart. I'm in. <laughs> right. I, I think he might be speaking very fast. Um, and it's easy to mistake that. It's easy to mistake that for, uh, for intelligence. Um, all right. I want to ask you some questions from our listeners. And maybe, maybe you can ask me some as well, since I know you have access to uh, the magical Google Doc. Um, but I thought we could start with this one. Uh, it comes from Caroline, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't actually come from Caroline, Ashley. She writes, Dear John and Hank, I want to start off by saying that I love your podcast. Thank you. The reason I'm writing to you is because I just lost my class election for the senior class secretarial position. I'm feeling very sad about the loss, and even though it was a close race, I still feel as though my classmates do not like me enough to elect me to such a position. What do you guys suggest in order to cope with this loss? And how do I still try to maintain a position to make my senior year fun for my class? 
Now, Ashley, I think we both know that Hillary Clinton wrote this email. <laughs> I think she did. I think she did, yeah. man. And picked yeah. Caroline of all names. And I'm like, as someone who went to North Carolina to talk to college students about her, <laughs> I'm a highly suspect right now. I am so suspect. It's very suspicious. <laughs> oh, I called a lot of voters in North Carolina in the five days before uh, before the election. Um yeah, it was fascinating to talk to them. I did I did greatly enjoy my many conversations with undecided voters in the days leading up to the election. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. What do you say to somebody who has lost an election that's very important to them? Um, you know, I think that the beauty of elections, if there is a beauty, is that uh, you really have to like be committed to this idea that you might lose you know like there's this right. thing you know like the beauty of it isn't the in the winning necessarily but it is in the fact that people have a choice like that's the beauty of an election is you know the choice and knowing that people get to have that choice and it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt and it doesn't mean that it doesn't um smart a little bit but I think, you know, I'm a realist who errs on the side of optimism as a choice, you know, and what I found that has been true in my life is that anytime I didn't get the thing I wanted, uh, something better eventually came along for me that I would not have been able to take part in had I gotten the thing that I thought I wanted. And yeah. it ended up being better for me in the long run. And I'm not saying that that's true for everyone. And I'm not saying that that's how it's always going to go. But I think there's a chance. And I think there's a lot to be learned from our losses as well as our wins. And I think sometimes the lesson isn't just ours. I think sometimes a person loses and the people who learn from that situation are the people who either didn't choose that person or the people who didn't choose at all. That's, uh, again, very good advice. Um, the only thing that I would add to that, in my life, I've definitely found that I learn more from failures and losses than I learn from successes, but it often takes me a while before I understand what I've learned. Like in the moment, it can be very painful, but then looking back on it later, I'm grateful for that experience. But I don't know how much it matters to me in the moment yeah. that later I'll be grateful. Like I remember after I had this horrible breakup just after the uh, terrorist attacks on 9-11 and th this woman and I had been living together and we were, you know, thought we thought we were going to get married and then we broke up and it was very, very difficult for me and I went through a really hard time. And I remember my mother saying to me, one day you will look back on this as one of the greatest things that ever happened to you. And I was like, well, maybe but not today, mm -hmm. and I'm in today. Like, I'm stuck in today, and today sucks. <laughs> so it does suck, and I'm sorry, right. but I also, uh, right. I do think that there there will be lessons to be taken from it, and, and you'll, you'll grow from it, Caroline. 
absolutely. You absolutely will. And, you know, I had a similar situation where, you know, I had a really bad breakup in college with someone who, you know, we were looking at apartments together and we were so in love and we had never even oh. been in a fight and all of these things. And we got into one argument and over the phone, he said, I just don't want to be a boyfriend anymore. <laughs> and oh. it was terrible. Like, and it threw me, you know, there were a lot of things going on in my life at that point. But, you know, that one situation just threw me into this really terrible depression. And it was the worst of my life. And, you know, for that was about seven years ago. And I have not since then felt anything that dire, felt anything that bad until last week. <laughs> And it yeah. was suddenly in last week that I was like, that was the first time I've ever felt truly grateful for that bout of terrible depression from 2009 um, was last week because suddenly I was looking at this depression that felt, you know, or this feeling that felt insurmountable. And, but it was so similar to that thing that I had gotten over before that I was able to be like, oh no, now I know the way over. Like, I know that it's not easy, but I also don't look forward and think there's no way over or I'll never know the way over. It's like, no, I've been here before and it sucks that I'm back here, but I can get out. Like, and I think that that's what's really hard in a moment, especially when you're hurting from something that you're not used to dealing with, is that you don't know the way over yet. And sometimes like that is the lesson <laughs> in that moment is now you know the way over from this place. All right, John, I've got a question for you. It's from Daisy. I'm going to read it right now. Cool. Great. Dear Hank and John, my husband and I have been married for over five years now, together for eight, and we always said we would be ready for kids at five years to give us time to enjoy just being a married couple before we start a family. But five years has come and neither of us feel, well, ready. Like, I want kids, I want a family, but I don't have that I need a baby feeling that I thought I would have. But part of me thinks that maybe that feeling will never come. I've never been a baby person, and so the choice to have kids might be more driven by logic than desire. Like, this is a good time to start a family rather than I want a kid now. We are starting to get the time's ticking comments from friends and family, but I don't want to make that important of a decision based on others' opinion. How do you know when you're ready to start a family? I, I mean, this is a tough one. I think oh. it really, I, obviously it depends. Um, and it's got to be a conversation with your partner. Uh, for us, mm -hmm. I don't think it was really a profound feeling of like, I, we need to have a baby in our lives. Uh, it was, to be honest, at least for me, like more of a sort of, I'm ready to enter that part of my life now and I'm excited to enter that part of my life now. Like we'd moved to Indianapolis from New mm -hmm. York and we had a lawn and we had, you know, a home and everything and there was a bedroom. <laughs> there was nothing to do with the bedroom. Henry, I, if you ever listen to this, I want to be clear that I did not bring you into the world because we had a spare bedroom, but... <laughs> I don't know, Henry. That sounds like that's what he's saying. We did. We did have a spare bedroom. Like, there was room in our lives for a kid, which uh, made it made it kind of make that sense. Does, I mean, I, like, I totally get that. Like, in some ways, I am more prepared to be a mother than I have ever been in my entire life. And I am also at a point where I am more adamant about making that decision 
exactly when I feel <laughs> like it's right than ever before. And, you know, I did the opposite, yeah. you know, of a you and Sarah. I moved from Indianapolis to New York. <laughs> so <laughs> so now I'm in Brooklyn in this, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's a good apartment. But listen, I'm born and raised Hoosier. So for the amount of money that I'm spending, I still, even though I like my apartment, often look at it and just get mad at it and kind of <laughs> want to like kick it or like, you know, or something because I'm like all of this money, all of this money for a one bedroom apartment. Yeah. And, you know, it's more like what I pay now in, you know, rent is literally, I'm not kidding you, <laughs> literally five times what I paid <laughs> when I was living in Indian to share a four-bedroom condo with two other people and right yeah that doesn't surprise me at all so it's so I'm very much you know my boyfriend and I uh, my partner and I Kelly we are very much of the mind that like yeah we might want to have kids at some point but not here you know every time I see somebody <laughs> every time we see somebody carrying a stroller up the subway steps we're like why why are you doing this to yourself like there are places I promise where you can go <laughs> and it won't be like this like it won't be this hard and kids in New York just seem so jaded they're like at the Museum of Natural History looking at dinosaur bones like uh again and I'm just like what <laughs> what they're dinosaurs, man. And kids here don't care about dinosaurs. They're just like... I know. Whatever. They're all little Holden Caulfields. That's how I felt when I lived in New York. <laughs> I would always be like, oh, this, they're just they're just the sweetest little Holden Caulfields everywhere you look. <laughs> they are. Um, they are. But it, people, people do have babies in Brooklyn. In fact, like lots of them. Lots of them. So many. There are of tons them. of strollers in Brooklyn. But yeah, I feel... I mean, I think the reason I feel the same way is probably because I grew up you know, in in a suburban America. And so when I thought of having kids, I imagined lawns and neighborhoods and cookouts and all the things that were part of my childhood. Yeah. Um, and so we never really considered having kids when we lived in New York, although for the record, lots of people do it and do it very successfully. I have many friends who live in New York and have kids and their kids are lovely. Oh, yeah. um, it just was never in the cards for us. But yeah, I... I do think there's an element of it never being quite the right time. The other thing is that on occasion, you know, the, the decision is made for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, or in the case of Sarah and I, we thought we had a ton of control over the timing. And then it turned out, that, of course, like we didn't. Um, yeah. So, you know, it there's an there's an element of, of, of chance to it that... Uh, I don't know. You, you you can potentially work that into your considerations, but uh, yeah, I think I, I think ultimately probably the place to make that decision is not while listening to the pod, but <laughs> while talking to your partner. I agree, but I, and you know, like it's just one of those things where I'm glad to see someone, especially a woman exploring you know their decision making when it comes to having a baby like I'm really glad to see a woman stopping and saying wait like am I doing this because I want to do it or am I doing mm -hmm. it because it's on a checklist and it's just the next thing you know I had right. so many um, women friends from college you know who have had babies at this point um, on purpose and a couple of them not on purpose you know but you know they have these babies and some of them are very much like 
you know, I, I had my baby, I wanted to have my baby, and now I have them, and it's the best thing in the world. And others of them are like, I wish I'd waited. I wish I didn't think that, like, you know, well, I got married, and then we bought a house, so now I have to mm-hmm. have a baby, you know? And I'm glad to see someone exploring that and really thinking about what they actually want and what family looks like for them because not every family includes kids and that's totally okay and you know there are a lot of different ways to be a family so start you know like I think it's important that, you know, if you're asking yourself these questions, to just keep asking them. And I think eventually the answer will come to you. I think at some point it does become pretty clear whether you're going to do it or not. Right. And when that happens, you know, it's just it's it's really comforting to know that, like, this is not something I rushed into. And it's something that I really thought about. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. And I do think it's really important uh, for women to be able to have those open conversations about uh, having kids, bringing kids up, not having to pretend like it's always easy or always fun or. Uh, like the pressures surrounding, uh, especially I think motherhood don't exist because they do. Um, and the social societal pressures are, are really, really intense. Um, they are. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. So. As someone who was a nanny, as someone who was a nanny for several years, <laughs> I could tell you like the pressure on moms is intense and yeah. and not so for nannies okay <laughs> nannies like we can really do whatever we want to be perfectly honest like the kids i used to nanny i still you know i go spend a couple of days with them before christmas almost every year um every time i'm in indiana i try to go see them we all end up sleeping in the same bed Aww. it's the most fun in the world but at the same time i'm so aware i'm so aware that like their mom has done so much like so much and i just get to be fun miss ashley right shows up and doesn't have to deal with like the mommy politics so when i teach them to say you know terrible things it's because i can get away with that and it's fun because it's miss ashley but if mom did it she'd be you know neglectful (laughs) total right yeah All right, Ashley, I've got another question for you. This one comes from Emma, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I was wondering why the space key on a keyboard makes a different sound than all the other keys. Is it due to its size, or perhaps is it due to the urgency with which we finish our words and feel the need to get on to the next one? I'd like to know because maybe I will now spend my study hall doing work instead of pondering this. Oh, my goodness. Um... I think it's the finger I, you this hit is it a, with. This is, a, this is a real thing. It is a real Let's thing. Let's just establish that at the start. It 100% is a real thing. I have thought about it a lot. I'm not kidding. Like, the minute I read that question, Me I too. started thinking about it. And you know what I think it is? I think it's just, I think it's the finger that you hit the key with. I th- I agree. I think, it's, I think it's the thumbness of it. I think so too. I think your thumb is, in my mind at least, like your heaviest finger because it's like stout and kind of fat and like weird. Mm -hmm. And also that like when you hit, at least when I hit the space key, I'm always hitting it with the side and not even Mm -hmm. like the pad of my finger. Right. It's not a fingertip. The way you hit a J, that, you know, I am. so uh, there's actually a word for like the way the keyboard feels when you push the key action. It's called the key action is when you push down 
and it and the way that that feels and how different it feels on different uh, keyboards. And in my early writing career, I I have OCD, but I would argue that this isn't necessarily uh, a, a compulsive thing. But I was very very obsessive about key action and different keyboards. And this before I got a laptop, I kept the same keyboard uh, through several computers while I was writing Looking for Alaska because I felt very strongly that the key action (laughs) was what made it possible for me to write well. Uh, And when I would try other keyboards, I would be like, no, 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 that sounds all wrong. That's extremely distracting. (laughs) Who could possibly write a a, a, a good novel with this terrible keyboard? (laughs) So I would just take the old keyboard that I'd had since college and and reinstall it into the new computer. Um, And I eventually got over that. Uh, But I did use a different keyboard for each book that I wrote until uh, the last five years. Uh, until until the end of the fault in our stars and and now i've i've decided to be a little bit less specific about it but it is it's so real the way the keys feel when you're writing it's so uh, it's real. part of the magic for me it's so real i still you know i started writing on pcs and so mm-hmm. going to the map which obviously has such a different key action from the PC totally. when you're on a Mac. I hated it. Like I immediately hated it. Like loathed yeah. it. Like what I would I used to um we didn't have a computer in our house um until I was really like either right before I went to college or after I went to college did we have wow. um a computer in our home. But the library was very close to my home Mm -hmm. and my brother and I used to walk to the library all the time to use the computers. And I was the kid who would sign up specifically for a PC computer and I would wait. Like I would (laughs) wait, like they would be like, there are five Macs open and I would be like, I don't care. I do not care. I will wait here. Don't mind me. I'm over here rereading this like Lucille Ball biography and then <laughs> and then I'm going to walk over and do like my thing on the computer, which to be fair was mostly like me writing stories about my life which were um real but that I pretended to you know fictionalize and then also looking up to see if anybody was posting lyrics from Kenny Loggins albums because I loved them and I wanted to make sure I was singing the words right Uh, but back then not a lot of people were posting Kenny Loggins lyrics on the internet so yeah I mean you probably could have cornered that market if only you'd had a computer at home by launching the definitive Kenny Loggins lyrics website this is a thing that I find completely fascinating about you. You are unironically deeply passionate about the songs of Kenny Loggins. Yes, absolutely. 100%. Like not even, yeah, like not even funny. Like it's, it's real. It's very, very real. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It, it's, uh, yeah. I, and I think, I think it's great. I am in favor of people being super enthusiastic and unembarrassed about the stuff that they love. Oh, yeah, you know... Whether that's Kenny Loggins albums or anything else. (laughs) Well, you know, I just, like, I've always... People ask me this a lot, like, um, I've had quite a few people who have met me in person who first met me on the internet, and they'll be like, you are so much of who you are on the internet. Like, it's all the same. And I'm like, oh, I'm just, like, this is not... 
I'm just really bad at pretending. Like, super <laughs> bad at it. Like, I, I, I'm really terrible at it. Like, I can't keep it up. The thing is, is that, like, I could, you know, have an account online or, you know, wherever and, like, sort of pretend to be a different way for a little while. And then I would just be so exhausted that you'd be like, Ashley, what's wrong with you? Like, I would be like a robot shutting down. Like, I would start to say things that didn't make sense. And you'd be like, what's happening? And I would be like, I was pretending and I'm sorry. I have to go back <laughs> to being me now, which means I'm going to, like, listen to Celebrate Me Home a lot. And also means, like, you know, the Return to Pooh Corner album is my fave. You know, I'm going to watch Golden Girls a lot. I'm going to watch The Nanny a lot. It's like these are just things that are part of who I am. And, you know, they're not harmful. So what do I have to hide, I guess? I think it's great, and I think it encourages everybody um, who has their weird, the weird thing that they love, to love it without any hesitation or embarrassment. Well, that's um, awesome. And Emma, that includes you and your fascination with keyboards, which I am 100% behind. 100%. Uh, so Ashley and I theorize that it is because you are hitting the space bar with the side of your stoutest digit that uh, causes the thud. But I will say, I don't think there is anything in my life that I like more than when I'm writing and it's going well and that sense of it's almost like the rhythmic thud of the space bar mm -hmm. is it, it, it's almost like that's the like you're driving at night and that's this that's the sight of those lane lines uh, going past your car yeah. or something it's just tremendously fulfilling to hit that space bar and feel like you're moving. I imagine it's what people who write or have written on typewriters a lot feel when they hear mm -hmm. that little like ding at the end when there's like that thing that's just like ding and then like it goes back to the other side. It's like, wow, right. it's like another row. How dare I be this amazing? Like how <laughs> dare I be this awesome to like just hear all these dings while I'm writing. Like I'm on fire over here. Yeah, yeah, it's that feeling. It's that, that's the feeling of like being on fire. And I totally agree with you about the Mac keyboard being utterly suboptimal when Ugh. it comes to that feeling because there's almost no key action in these keys. No, there's almost none. It feels like, like there's little pillows under them or something. And I'm like, I don't need, yeah. I don't want pillows under my keys, man. Like I want, like, I don't even want key action. I want key impact. Okay. Like I need to hear <laughs> it. Like I want it to come together and I want to like hear like the click, 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 click. Like I need it. So yeah. That's basically where we stand on these keyboards. I've frequently wondered if I should just like do the thing where you put your Mac up on like a stand and then mm -hmm. have like your PC keyboard attached to it yeah. that you type on. Yeah. Because maybe I'd I have thought of doing that, but then I think like that when I, when, if, if people ask me about that, when I am explaining it, I'm going to seem uh, like I'm. <laughs> totally out of touch with reality but i'm really <laughs> glad to know that i'm not that you agree with me about this on this we definitely uh, agree john <laughs> this question is from isaiah who asks sorry ashley and i are, are laughing at something that you guys didn't get to hear um this question comes from isaiah who asks dear john and hank i'm worried that i'm losing a very special skill for years i've been a practitioner of jazz music i've spent thousands of hours studying theory practicing rehearsing and jamming 
and even forming a spiritual realization of music. However, as a young person rising through the ranks, I quickly realized that music pays way fewer bills than I ever imagined. We all know that musicians rarely make much from records nowadays, but at least in Chicago, venues don't pay for live shows either. I've sold all my tickets to House of Blues twice on Friday nights and went home with zero dollars. I was lucky enough to make it into Evanston, Illinois' most famous university, which, by the way, Isaiah counts my wife among their alumni, to study biology, which I enjoy. I make a modest living with a low ceiling as a teacher. However, the feeling of being me felt different when I was better at jazz. I haven't completely stopped playing, but without spending hours on it each day, I feel rusty, and I wonder if I'll spend my whole life feeling rusty. That question makes me a little sad. I know, it's a hard one, because... This is a this is a true fact of being a, an artist or making things for a living or performing uh, for a living, which is that many times it isn't your living. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really hard to do that, and you know that's not you know that's not Isaiah's fault. Uh, that's no artist's fault for the most part. The the biggest fault is that you know. People tend to devalue work that is enjoyed <laughs> while it is being made. <laughs> so it's like if right. you liked it, then why am I paying you for it? <laughs> and that's unfortunate. And I, I think that's sort of, you know, the wrong way to go. But it is kind of the way things are right now. And it's hard. It's hard when you love something and you study it and you devote all this time to it and then feel like you can't maintain that level of expertise or that level of production or, you know, whatever. But at the same time, you know, I I think sometimes we have to shift our idea of what art is for. And I think that while we want to be experts and we want to be people who are always at the top of our game in art, that you have to make a decision somewhere along the line about whether or not that's something that you can actually do and also um, whether or not that's something you can sustain. And it's just such a hard question and it's so private, I think, really personal. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is very much like a case-to-case thing. I mean, I come at this from an incredibly privileged position because I've been able to make a living writing for for a long time now i mean for for the first several years that i was writing and even when i was writing semi-professionally um i didn't but but i have for uh the last you know nine nine or ten years um but i I do have maybe like an analogous experience in the sense that after my book the fault in our stars came out um for a long time i wasn't writing uh, because I was doing other things because there was movie stuff happening and uh, our crash course channel was taking off our educational video channel that, that Hank and I started. And um, and then also because writing became uh, unfun and I started to feel rusty and I started to feel like I wasn't uh, good at it anymore and like maybe I was never going to be good at it again. And there are lots of examples of this happening. Like it's not an irrational fear you know, I mean, there there's famous stories of people who are among the best golfers in the world, for instance, and one day they picked up their clubs and found that they could no longer uh, play golf well. Uh, there's a exa- very famous example of a baseball player who made three straight throwing errors in the major leagues after a very successful major league career, 
and never again was able to play uh, Major League Baseball. Like, just was never able to do it again. Never could complete the throws. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, like in the case of writing, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of examples of, of people like that from, you know, wonderful writers who had very successful careers like Harper Lee mm -hmm. uh, to many, many writers out there, like including my great uncle who wrote one novel and then uh, found it impossible to write another, whether it was the first one was successful or not. So I did. I, I started to feel rusty and I also felt like it was something that I could never do again or never, never enjoy again. Um, I found, though, for me that by keeping at it uh, and by continuing to try to write uh, that it got better. I didn't stop feeling rusty and I still probably think that uh, and I'm not well I'll just say this I still do probably think that my best writing is is behind me um, in mm -hmm. a lot of ways but uh, I have I was what I found was a, an ability to enjoy writing again because I stopped making it about wanting to be the best mm. or wanting to be better than some past version of myself or better than other people I admire a lot who write YA fiction or better than this or better than that. And instead of seeing it as like a, a pyramid or something that you're trying to get to the top of, I started seeing it as a huge ball that I'm trying to like contribute one layer of paint to. Uh, and lots and lots of other people are contributing layers of paint and through that the ball gets more beautiful and interesting and also bigger uh, and and instead of me being needing to be like at the top of my game somehow uh, what I can really do I think in the end is contribute uh, in a small way to a very big conversation that's very old and uh, and that's what art is for me Oh my gosh, John, you're really messing me up right now because, <laughs> I mean, so many, you know, like my fears as a writer, as a performer, and as someone who, you know, um, needs to make a living are so wrapped up in a lot of, you know, those same thoughts and those same, you know, like the rustiness and the, you know, what if I have already done the best thing I'm ever going to do? And right. I think, you know, as someone who has a day job, somebody who has a place that she has to be, <laughs> you know, like every day, even though even even in terms of like day jobs, I'm still kind of sitting pretty because I have unlimited vacation at my job. And also, you know, they understand that I'm a writer and do other things and, you know, allow me room and space to do those things, which is not true for everybody um, or even most people who have day jobs. Um, but, you know, I have a lot of those fears that by having this day job or, you know, by doing things that are not just sitting down and writing, that I'm not being a good writer and that I won't ever be a better writer because of those things you know but sometimes i'm like you know some things you just they're important and they are part of living a full and whole life as an artist um mm -hmm. and that's important not just for your art but also for the way you experience the world in general like at the end of the day we're people you know and we might be artist people 
but we are still people and people have to eat and people have to have somewhere to live and people have to have you know certain things to feel you know comfortable and feel like they can get to a place where they can even create in the way that they want to you know so I don't know I guess I'm just saying that you know I feel like tonight I should be working on my book but instead I'm interviewing Zadie Smith you know and that does not feel that sounds pretty great actually right but it <laughs> my point is like that doesn't feel like being less of a writer that doesn't feel right. like being less of an artist that doesn't feel like I'm throwing away some future and I think I think that the key to art that we forget sometimes is joy and you know you talking about finding the joy and being able to enjoy writing again I think I, I don't think that the problem with Isaiah is that, you know, because he can't spend hours a day, he'll never be happy. I think he sort of has to redefine why and how music gives him joy and what, how and why playing music gives him, you know, space to feel like more of himself or the person that he wants to be. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, and I think ultimately the conclusion that I've come to about writing um, is that regardless of whether I ever publish anything again, writing helps me feel like myself. It helps me. It, it is. It's like it's it's joyful for me. Um, it's the only it's kind of the only time that for me that I can get lost enough in something. I feel this occasionally when I read mm -hmm. um, when I can get lost enough in something that uh, I feel like I can escape myself for a minute, uh, which is a very joyful thing. Like it, to me, it's sort of terrifying the thought of being stuck inside of one uh, one consciousness for oh. for decades and decades. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Like I'm already, I already have a hard time. Just like you know, I tried meditating, and meditating sounds so awesome in theory, and I really want to do it because I really want to be the kind of person who can do it and every yeah. time i'm just like whoa it is like it's not safe in here i can't just that, be in here like for 10 minutes i like, totally agree I, it is not safe in here and yeah. you know maybe that's its own problem maybe i should be talking to somebody more about that but you know i mean i completely is. agree with you and i know that i'm I'm actually having to meditate every day uh, because of this uh, new health and fitness show that I'm doing on YouTube, youtube.com slash 100 days, never not self-promoing. <laughs> and um, it's not going great. Oh, uh, and lots of people are telling me, oh, you're just meditating wrong. And I'm like, you know what? Criticizing my meditation is also not helpful. Like no. that's not, that's also not getting me to where I need to be right now. Like, because before when I wasn't meditating at all, I was happier. And now with you criticizing my meditation on top of not enjoying the meditation, you're making everything worse. Everything's worse now. Thanks for nothing. Meditation. Like just blame yeah. it all on meditation. <laughs> <laughs> you did do right by me meditation <laughs> I thought this was you know it's just one of those things where it's like it's just it is not going well and boy did I give it my best shot but you know what there are other things to master in this world and I, I should probably move along this just this one just ain't for me. <laughs> this one just ain't for me. I talked to my friend Josh Sunquist about meditation. He's a big uh, advocate for it, and he was like, "Oh, I didn't see any uh, much improvement at all in the first year 
And I was like, I can't do something for a year where I don't see any improvement. <laughs> I can just barely brush my teeth every day for a year, like knowing that there are real risks to not. Like there's no way I'm going to be able to put in the time necessary to get these rewards. I John, like I'm so with you on this and it's like a thing about myself that infuriates me about myself but also it's like I just have to know that that's true like I just spent a lot of yeah. money on a personal trainer who I've seen like four times and now I'm kind of like I think I got all I needed out of that <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I, I, I don't think I'm the kind of person who personally trains, you know, what I mean? like, after after just like a few sessions, because I was like, hmm, I'm not really losing any weight here. Uh, yeah, I don't really feel better. People were like, your energy is going to get better. And I was like, nah, I've just been sleeping more. So, no, I'm OK. I'm cool. Yeah. I mean, you really do. I, I have found benefits to exercise, but it is totally true that uh, they are not immediate. Um, but yeah, I'm. I, I should go. I, well, but I'm, I don't. Just take care of yourself in whatever ways you can find. <laughs> Thank you. So we all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but there are two things that you shouldn't compromise on. One is name brand Dr. Pepper. The off-brand stuff just doesn't hit the same. And another is, of course, your health. So don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines or their family group chat or the crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance. So literally, no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat basically any condition you're searching for. And the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 72 hours. So go to ZocDoc.com slash DearHank and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash DearHank. ZocDoc.com slash Dear Hank. Uh, we should move on to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, Ashley. I know this is your favorite part of the podcast and also the listeners. Just kidding. <laughs> it absolutely is. Nobody likes it. The news from Mars. <laughs> I looked up some news from Mars for you people. It was physically painful. I did not enjoy it. Mars is a boring, cold rock in the vastness of space. It doesn't matter. However, <laughs> since Hank is not here, I did look up some news from Mars, and they've just found a depression on Mars, not caused by the election, but caused by a crater at the edge of the Hellas Basin, uh, which is surrounded by glacial deposits and is near to another similar depression. And the nature of this depression is such that it has it was likely a place where life would have formed if life indeed formed on Mars. Um, so they now know a place that they can go look for life on Mars if and when anybody ever gets to Mars, which will hopefully not happen until 2028, because if it doesn't happen until 2028, we get to rename this podcast Dear John and Hank, which is my dearest dream. I don't know, That John. is the news from Mars. I don't know, John. I think... Uh, post-election, people might be speeding up their Mars plan. <laughs> I am, I am, I think, I I am think, concerned. 
I'm not saying I'm a that little that's concerned. true. I'm not saying that yeah. I've heard rumors, but yeah. I am saying that I live in New York City and talk gets around, okay? <laughs> and <laughs> I am saying that, you know, Mars is looking uh, better and better every day, John. And that's not a personal opinion. I, I think that's no, just... No, no, yeah. Yeah. I am concerned. I think that this election was very bad um, for my ability to make sure that uh, humans are an Earth-only <laughs> species until at least 2028 so I can get this podcast renamed. Man, um, we really took a hit. All right. So there is also news from AFC Wimbledon. Uh, the third-tier English soccer team, sponsored by Nerdfighteria, owned by their fans, uh, who've worked their way up all the way from the ninth tier of English football, uh, now uh, to the third tier. They played the FA Cup yesterday, which is a, a competition that uh, the old Wimbledon actually won once, and uh, they beat a team called Barry, B-U-R-Y, as in we buried them. Um, we beat oh. them five to nothing. We scored five goals in just 90 minutes what? and we won five to nothing. Who scored the goals? Frickin' everybody. Everybody scored. Uh, it was it was amazing. Paul Robinson scored a goal. Uh, Dom Polian scored a goal. The, the, the Montserratian Messi, Lyle Taylor, scored a goal. Uh, the, the, the leading scorer of, on Montserrat's uh, national football team, Lyle Taylor, uh, scored a goal as well. It was just, it was a beautiful, beautiful game. 5 nothing victory. Uh, you can watch the highlights on YouTube. The, the YouTube highlight uh, reel is like 17 minutes long oh because it just, the goals just kept coming. Uh, yeah, it was great. Uh, that means that we're going to the second round of the FA Cup, uh, where we're going to play a team in the sixth tier. Uh, we, the, the draw has already happened, and it's, uh, I, I want to give you the name because I know that I know how much this matters to everybody. <laughs> the name of the team is Curzon Ashton. Uh, and if we win that game, uh, we will then get to the third round of the FA Cup where we could potentially play like Manchester United or Chelsea or something, what? which would be incredibly exciting and also quite lucrative. John, what? Uh, I know, yeah, I know. I know. It's okay. pretty great. The last time I looked up stuff about AFC Wimbledon, I was actually super shocked at their ranking um, in the third tier. But I had doing great. But I had I know, which was like they were only like I think last time I looked they had seventeen points. Um, but now they things have, have gotten even better. Things have gotten even better for AFC Wimbledon, which makes me very happy um, because I decided to get into uh, club soccer a little bit over the past two years, uh, which was heavily influenced by your enthusiasm. So I, I knew a little bit about Yay. a little bit. But here's my question that, you know, mm -hmm. like I'm wondering, what does it mean if AFC Wimbledon were to beat a Manchester United? <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> it would be, it, it would mean like in the scheme of things, like probably nothing because then they would just in the next round draw another team like Manchester United that would presumably at some point beat them. Yeah. But in it, of course, like in the in the long run, nothing matters. You know, like in the <laughs> it, 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 if right. you want to really zoom out, like nothing matters in football or or in anything else. Uh, so. 
So you don't want to zoom all the way out, right? Like right. you want to live in the moment and in the moment it would be ridiculous. Like it would be, it would be the, it would just be, uh, it would be so beautiful, especially if it was Manchester United, the team I hate most in the whole world, except maybe <laughs> Chelsea. If it were Manchester United or Chelsea, it would feel so good especially Chelsea because they also play in South London. So mm -hmm. like they're sort of rivals with AFC Wimbledon, but of course Chelsea has never paused to consider AFC Wimbledon <laughs> as a rival. Um, that well, would feel pretty they, great. But that's why they need their butt kicked. <laughs> yeah, totally. Opinion. Totally. Yeah. They need to be reminded that, uh, that there's another team in South London that's coming for them. That's the thing. It's like, sometimes you don't need to win all the games. You just need them to know you're coming. Like, you just need right. them to know that, like, hey, I'm around. Yeah. You just need them to be, just a, just the thought of them being aware of you is tremendously fulfilling, you know? Yeah. Like, the thought of them having to worry about it, having to be like, oh, gosh, which of our players who make $200,000 a week are we going to start against AFC Wimbledon? That's how I feel about That would about be great. My, yeah. That's how I feel about my enemies, personally. It's like, <laughs> I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not really trying to, like, do anything to them. I just need them to know I'm around. <laughs> there is something tremendously fulfilling about your enemies worrying about you. Yeah, um, I only have two, but should I ever acquire more enemies? I hope not. I don't really like having enemies because then you have to think about them, and that seems it's stressful. wasteful. It's stressful and wasteful. There are so many things to be thinking about in the world, and just like enemies seems like the worst thing to have to think about, except like going to the dentist, which you know, mm -hmm. does seem like a pretty, you know, like, like a, like, not like a waste, but definitely like, I wish I didn't have to think about that. And I feel like enemies are yes. kind of the same way. Like, I just wish I never had to think about my two enemies who are also both in their seventies. So maybe I won't. They're in their seventies. Yeah. Oh, so, I mean, obviously I, I'm not going to I'm not going to ask you to name them because that gives your enemies power. It does. You may not want to give them that power. I don't. But I love your chances of outliving them. <laughs> My chances are great. I mean, not just based on, like, age, but also mm -hmm. based on, like, general uh, wilderness survival skills, of which I have many, and they have none. <laughs> and so I, I just, like, I feel like no matter what happens, I'm still probably going to outlive them be right. just because of my like, just because my just because of my wilderness skills and also because of my uh, general youth, which is, you know, just slipping, slipping by the day. I'll be 30 in January. No, oh, it's you're so young <laughs> Oh, to be so young. Um, I'm glad to know, though, that in the like, uh, post-social order collapse Mr. Robot future that we're all headed for uh, your your wilderness survival skills are going to come in handy because I will be knocking on the door of your tent. <laughs> you better. You can come through, John. You can totally come through. Um, you and your fam. Listen, my boyfriend uh, is really great with a bow and arrow. I Oh, wow. Great. I'm great at sewing and cooking and building fires. Uh, I was a Boy Scout post high school, so I just learned a bunch because that's what I do. I'm an information junkie. And then I just would practice it sometimes because I'm just, I'm also an anxiety junkie. And so every once in a while, I'm like, nah, <laughs> like this whole structure, this whole like civilized like society, nope, could come crashing down any minute. I gotta be ready. 
I gotta be so ready. I agree that it's it's exceptionally fragile, but I haven't done a good job preparing. I am uh, a reasonably astute starter of fires, so perhaps that can be the way that I contribute. Yes, you're in. You're in the club. All the I need club. is a lighter and a dura flame, okay, and I can get club. a fire started 99 <laughs> times out of 100. <laughs> might not have a lighter. <laughs> you might be out of the club. <laughs> well, uh, Ashley, thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast with me. This has been uh, an unadulterated joy. I want to tell everybody uh, to follow you on Twitter to keep up with all the things that you're doing, even though you are taking, and I think this is very smart, the remainder of November off uh, from Twitter. Uh, I might be back sooner, though, for my job, because I might be taking a road trip, like an interesting little road trip that uh, requires my Twitter usage. So we'll see. We'll see. That sounds exciting. Um, But Mm -hmm. yeah, so you can follow uh, Ashley on Twitter at I smash fizzle. I S M A S H F I Z Z L A. Nope. F I Z Z L E. I'm really bad at spelling. <laughs> it's just the exact way that you would think I smash f- fizzle is spelled. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so phonetic. It's very, very it's, easy. It's not a challenging uh, Twitter handle to spell. <laughs> uh, you can also find me on Twitter at John Green, J O H N G R A A N. And um, uh, you can send us emails at hankandjohn at gmail.com. That's all one word, hankandjohn at gmail.com. Uh, yeah, so you can you can be in contact with us, and we will try to answer as many of your questions as possible. I apologize to all the people who uh, we didn't answer your questions. I also uh, want to apologize to all the Trents out there because in a recent episode mm-hmm. of the podcast, uh, Hank used the word the name Trent as an example of a millennial name. I made fun of Hank uh, for that. Uh, several Trents felt that that was a bit of a personal slight so I just want to say to all the Trents out there just because you almost certainly aren't a millennial doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with your lovely name and I am sorry if I implied otherwise and in fact if you are a millennial I am sorry about implying that you weren't if you want to be a millennial which seems like a dubious proposition to me but whatever it's your life <laughs> Ashley thank you so much though for uh, for, for potting with me this, is, this has been a joy. This has been so much fun for me this is a little bit of a a dream come true because I love listening to the pod and being on it just makes me feel like even more of an old nerd fighter. Awesome. Well, I will say nothing ruins this podcast quite like having to listen to your own voice on it. So look forward to that pleasure. Uh, again, you can write us at hankandjohn at gmail.com. Our podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. Victoria helps out with questions, as does Reziana Hals-Rojas. Um, thanks to everybody for listening and to Gunnarola for doing our theme music. Uh, and as we say in my hometown, don't forget to be awesome. Awesome.